It's hard enough being a suitcase these days. Being stuffed at the back of this wardrobe for so long. <laughs> Could do the dusting, you know. Oh, a bikini? Is that sun cream? Ready for a holiday? It's time to fly from Shannon Airport. Did someone say a holiday? Discover more destinations than ever before, including New York, Boston, Malta, Barcelona, Budapest, Corfu, and more reasons to fly at shannonairport.ie. Yes! Talking history, history on News Talk. Good evening and welcome. We're talking history on News Talk 106 to 108 with me, Patrick Gagan. In tonight's show, a short history of France. Whether Isolde of Tristan and Isolde fame was a Dublin princess, the Friends of Irish Freedom and their attempts to keep America out of the First World War, the Gallipoli disaster and the role of the warlords, and to end the show we'll find out about the strange and enchanted life of a pivotal figure in the history of the avant-garde. Now, last week we were in Belfast for our first outside broadcast since the pandemic and we were debating the creation of Northern Ireland and partition 100 years ago in the Harrison Chambers of Distinction, a bohemian boutique hotel in Belfast. And we had an absolutely fantastic time in those beautiful surroundings. And if you want to listen back to that or any of our older shows, just go to our website, newstalk.com or wherever you download your podcasts. We begin tonight's show with a short history of France. Artists, martyrs, kings, revolutionaries, France's sense of national identity is inextricably linked to its dramatic history. And this dramatic history is brilliantly told in a new book, France, A Short History. It's published in hardback by Thames and Hudson. The author is Jeremy Black. And Jeremy, very welcome back to the show. Very good to be on. Now, you cover a vast amount of material in uh, a, a relatively short amount of space and you have everything, art and architecture, uh, literature, the politics, all of this. But let's go straight into an event that in a way defined not only France, but also the world. And that's the French Revolution. How should we view the French Revolution, looking back on it now, a little over 200 years? Well, history, as all our countries know, and Ireland is exactly the same as England here, history does not always move with the harmony of a vicar's tea party. And in the case of France, I think it's fair to say that the Ancien Regime, the system that we call how France was governed and its social system in the 18th century, couldn't have been sustained. The sadness is that it took a major civil war to change it. And again, you know, we can think of the relationship with Ireland between Ireland and England the same way. Um, you know, it's sad that it didn't change those, as, for example, Australia did or Canada did. Um, and sometimes, you know, you, this is a result of specific circumstances. Sometimes it's a result of broader structures. In the case of the French Revolution, Beginning of 1789, if you'd actually said to people, you know, four years later, you'll be cutting off the king's head, you'll soon after abolish Christianity, people would have just said, don't be ridiculous. But what it showed is once you start things, it's often, they often radicalize under pressure, as indeed happened with the Russian Revolution in 1917. The interesting thing, and what I tried to do in that history, and I've done a series of national histories, I've also done Spain... Italy, Portugal, they're all out and Germany's coming out. What I've, what I've tried to do is not only look at how the past as it happens at the time, but also how the past is later recalled. 
So one of the things about the French Revolution is, as it were, the two sides, in practice there were more than two sides, but the two sides and their differing accounts of good and evil, but what a surprise they were good and the other side was evil, actually then come to structure a lot of French history over the following two centuries. And how the past is recalled becomes a key element of the present. And I think that's a very interesting aspect of history. And that's true as well when you look at some of the major figures from French history, someone like Napoleon. I'm interested to read even about recent recent controversies where exhibitions aren't getting the the attention or the the crowd the crowds attending that they expected. And it's interesting to see that someone like Napoleon is still a somewhat divisive figure. Yeah, Napoleon's a very divisive figure. And what's interesting is you see this in different periods. So, for example. Napoleon's kicked out. Um, There is then a period in which Napoleon becomes, as it were, a villain under the restored Bourbons. Then uh, the restored Bourbons are kicked out in 1830 and a sort of more liberal monarchy come in. They like Napoleon, so they bring his body back from St. Helena. Then Napoleon III, Napoleon's um, nephew, comes in. You have emperor worship. Then you get the Third Republic. They don't like uh, Napoleon. And so it changes. And what, what, in other words, happens is the past affects the present, But the present, the politics of the present, also affect how French people look at the past. And exactly the same, incidentally, if something else. I mean, I did a book some years ago on how the Holocaust was recalled after 1945. So it's exactly the same in in French history after 1945. Um, The the uh, the Fourth Republic and de Gaulle really didn't talk about uh, the French role in the Holocaust because what they wanted was to try and unite all French people around the idea that they'd all been in the resistance and only a tiny number of people had aligned with the Third Reich. And that attitude didn't start to change till the 70s. Mitterrand, President Mitterrand, who became president in 1981, didn't like the change. He actually every year uh, sent a wreath to Pétain's tomb. So during the Mitterrand years, it becomes a political struggle with the right under Chirac, mayor of Paris, putting up uh, memorials in Paris about Jews being killed uh, and handed over by Vichy authorities, um, whilst Mitterrand it doesn't like that at all. Then when Mitterrand goes, you get a dramatic change when Chirac becomes president. So in other words, the past is linked to the present. Um, and I think that these kind of factors are true of all sorts of countries. I mean, you, you know, you, you, people will have very different views, very different views, your listeners as well in Ireland, but also people on, you know, in England will have very different views on Brexit. But what's interesting with Brexit is the way that some of its supporters, for good or ill, you know, used the very different case of 1940 um, in order to argue a case for 2016. Now, in fact, the cases were totally different. Um, But what they're doing is they're tapping into an image of the past in order to provide an account of the present for the future. And that's a real thing that historians um, you know, need to note and to talk about. And as you may know, I mean, you know, I've got lots of faults. You need only to ask my wife about those. Uh, but I have written more history books than anybody else in the world. I'm now up to 170. And one of the things I've always tried to do is to look at how the past 
isn't something that's dead. It's something that's constantly affecting, but also being reinterpreted by the present. Very good. I, I almost feel like we should do a whole show on how you uh, managed to be so productive and you could inspire a whole generation of historians here as well. I, 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 before we go, I'd love to ask you about Charles de Gaulle as well. I wonder, is his reputation experiencing the same kind of debate and uncertainty? Well, first of all, on Charles de Gaulle, there is a very good recent biography by a chap called Julian Jackson, and I can recommend it. So for listeners, if they want, it's a very big book. You drop it from the second floor of a house, it'll kill somebody on the ground floor, on the ground, you know, on the pavement, but it's a good book. Um, on Charles de Gaulle, I think it's very interesting. I mean, France, like all countries, is trying to define what nationality, nationhood, and nationalism means in the modern world, in which you try to cooperate with other countries through multilateral and bilateral relationships, but you also are aware of a constant, um, as it were, account of your own distinctive history. And I think the thing about de Gaulle is de Gaulle had a vision of France. Now, in part, that vision, like most people's visions of their own country, could be put in a hell of a lot of question marks. But his belief helped to take France forward. I mean, if you think about it, France lost its empire. It had the terrible defeat um, in Indochina. Um, it, had def- it was defeated in Algeria. Uh, and the Fourth Republic, uh, the one that had been in from World War II until de Gaulle came along, was a period of chaos and confusion. And what's interesting about de Gaulle is he helps to transform that. Now, one has to be careful. I mean, his achievement was nearly overthrown in 1968. There were large-scale riots in Paris. De Gaulle himself, as I mentioned in the book, flies off to Germany to see the, uh, the generals in the French army in Germany. There was a French force uh, kept there as part of NATO. And he says to them, you know, if I lose control in Paris, are you willing to send the tanks in? And they say yes, and he flies back, doesn't actually lose control. Um, so, uh, but it, you know, it, it's a sign of that France was not completely stable. But nevertheless, he's able to t- to change the mood, and I think that was a very important thing. And he also helped to put a, although he himself was not terribly interested in economic matters, he backed people who were willing to try and uh, transform France from a society that was still heavily rural and quite frankly with a relatively low standard of living in those areas, into a society that was much more engaged with the potential of industry and, and you know, what was offering in what the French call the 30 uh, great years. Um, and I think that that was an important um, transformation of France. I mean, the interesting thing is that de Gaulle was a figure of great probity. He was uh, a very moral man um, and hated, in fact, immorality. And it's interesting that the only subsequent French uh, leader who's in a way had a comparable prestige is now looking much more tarnished. And that's Francois Mitterrand, who, leaving aside all the mistresses and all the illegitimate, you know, and all the rest of it, actually was involved in a fair amount of, of corruption. Whereas one of the interesting things, and, you know, other French leaders, I mean, Chirac and Sarkozy both had um, criminal uh, convictions for corruption. One of the things about de Gaulle is that he was a man of enormous integrity. And I think that was very, very, very significant because in France, and this is something that the English find impossible to understand, 
because of the nature of their constitution. In France, as in America, um, an election is really delivering a head of state as well as a CEO. You know, you have a presidential system. And I mean, I think de Gaulle rose to the challenge of the presidential system he helped to create. And that's very impressive. Well, Jeremy, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you tonight. We could have done the entire show. In fact, we probably could have got a whole year of shows on the history of France or indeed some of your other works. But delighted to have you back when you have the Germany history out as well. This one is France, A Short History, published in hardback by Thames and Hudson, the author, Jeremy Black. And we'll be back with more Talking History on News Talk right after this. Talking History, history on News Talk. Well, welcome back to Talking History. I'm delighted to welcome back to the show Professor Sean Duffy of Trinity College Dublin, who has edited a new volume in the Medieval Dublin series. It's a series that we always love coming back to because it brings together leading work by scholars on themes relating to Medieval Dublin. This is volume 18, and it's a series published by Four Courts Press, this one in paperback as well as hardback. And Sean, you're very welcome back to the show with more great new material. Thanks very much, Patrick. Uh, great to be with you again. There are some really fascinating stories in this volume, and I want to start with Quiva Whelan's uh, essay on on Tristan and Isolde, because it's this great Arthurian romance. It, uh, Wagner turns it into an opera, and uh, Quiva explores whether uh, this may have an historical basis, given that Isolde was meant to have been a, a Dublin princess. I mean, obviously, most of our listeners will have heard of Isolde and Tristan. Most Irish people, I think, though, don't know that uh, the, the Isolde of the tale is actually meant to have been born in Dublin, to have been the daughter of a king of of Dublin. And, um, and most people, I think, if they even if they did know that, Patrick, they tended to assume that well, it's it's, it's a myth, you know, it's legend. And there can't be any basis to it. And they're probably right. I mean, there's probably, there is probably not a historical basis to it. And yet, you know, there are personages and there are events that, that occur in the original tale. And there's lots of different versions of it. There are events that occur that might suggest um, that the individuals, uh, that the main characters in it may be based on historical figures. It may even be based on, on people who were around in Ireland in the aftermath of the Battle of Clontarf in the late 11th and the early 12th century and so on, and who, and that the story in it of contact between the island of Ireland and the island of Britain, uh, contemporary kings in England and kings uh, and princes in Wales, that, that might actually reflect uh, real, quite close, high-status political links between the two countries. That we, we really don't. We really can't know anything about that. But one of the things that, um, you know, that Dublin people always are, are, are aware of is the fact that Chapel Lizard, for instance, is, is the chapel of Isolde. And in Dublin City, we have Isolde's Tower down on the banks of the Lissy, which was excavated during the, um, the Temple Bar refurbishment that took place in the 90s. And the question is, do these reflect some sort of medieval connection with Isolde? I mean, I personally, I don't know. I mean, Isolde is a personal name. There are people called Isolde that can be identified living in Dublin in the 12th and 13th centuries, rather than this 
this uh, this wonderful fictional character. We don't know. There is but one other thing I would say about Patrick that's slightly. Again, we, we don't think about it. You know, if you travel to any country in Europe, all the great libraries have medieval manuscripts of the story of Isolde and Tristan. And the best of those manuscripts are beautifully illustrated. And when you look at them, the manuscripts, you're actually looking at illustrations of Dublin. So you see Isolde in her castle in Dublin, which is an attempt to portray what Dublin looked like. And Cleva Whelan, in, in her paper, she prints uh, some of these illustrations from it, and there are many more of them that we, we could have included. And they're not realistic. That's not the real Dublin. But they are attempts by Europeans who perhaps had never set foot in Ireland to imagine Dublin. You know, you're, you're living in Cologne in the 14th century. What does Dublin look like? And it's interesting to see the way different peoples in different cities in Europe uh, uh, conjured up an, an imaginary Dublin. So it's a fascinating little, you know, aside, if you like, in the long story of, of Isolde and Tristan. There is also a fascinating essay on the two cathedrals in Dublin, uh, St. Patrick's and Christchurch. And that's something that I think confuses a lot of people. How come even before the Reformation, there were two cathedrals in Dublin when there should really have only been one? As far as I know, it's, it's unique. Um, I mean, obviously in the modern age, you have, you're going to have a Catholic cathedral and a Protestant cathedral in many cities. But not before the Reformation, you should not have. Because a cathedral, I mean, it comes from the word cathedra, which is a seat, a bishop's seat. So if you have one bishop, you should, he, he should only have one seat. Um, now, there are, in England, for instance, you'll have, you have the Diocese of Bath and Wells. But it's, it's called Bath and Wells because originally it was two dioceses and they, it got merged. So yes, there's a Bath Cathedral and a, and a Wells Cathedral, but and so that is an anomaly. But in Dublin, which was only ever one uh, one city, there should only be one cathedral, and yet it has two. And I mean the and the really, um, I mean the real. You couldn't find a better example of the complications that arose in Ireland after we were conquered by the Anglo Normans in in the 1170s. Because Christchurch was already in existence then, and it seems to have been the case that for Dublin's new English masters, they couldn't get the cooperation they wanted from Christchurch, and they felt they had no choice but to invent a new cathedral. And they took an old church that had already existed outside the city walls, the parish church of St. Patrick, and they elevated that to cathedral status, even though they already had, had their own cathedral. And it led to literally hundreds of years of competition between the two. I mean, I'm not a member of the Church of Ireland, but I suspect uh, 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 members of the Church of Ireland, in, even in the 21st century, would tell you that Christchurch and St. Patrick's, you know, there's a healthy rivalry between the two of them to this very day. But in the Middle Ages, frequently, it wasn't that healthy. You know, it was quite, um, it was indicative, if you like, of the, the, the split between the, the sort of native population where, which maintained some kind of presence and hold over Christchurch, perhaps in the early stages after the invasion. And then the kind of the new uh, English aristocratic governance of the city that wanted its own new brash English style uh, place of worship. And hence you have that different role for the two churches all the way through the Middle Ages. And it's a subtle thing, it's a delicate thing, but there's a fabulous paper in it 
by John William Sullivan in, in the volume where he describes the different, you know, the different, the essence of that difference in the Middle Ages and all the way through the centuries, uh, what it was that distinguished the two, even though both were of the same church. Yeah, some absolutely brilliant essays in the collection and a wonderful archaeological report by Alan Hayden on the old Kevin Street Garda station. And I never realised that there was so much history underneath that building. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a, um, it's a, it is an amazing story. I mean, it has been a police station since the 1830s, I think it is, when it was handed over to the Dublin Metropolitan Police. But before then, it was where the archbishop lived. It was, and it was a bishop's palace. And it was built uh, in the early 13th century. It was called the Palace of St. Sepulchre, called after the holy burial place in, in Jerusalem of Jesus. And um, the, the archbishop of Dublin lived there. Now, he had other places that he lived in. He lived frequently in, in Swords, for instance, in Sword, what is now Swords Castle. But it, it was a, a magnificent building in its day, and then eventually became this, this um, a, a very inappropriately used as a, as a police barracks. And, uh, but when you strip away, now that the guards have left it, uh, they started to strip away the, you know, the, the impositions uh, that, that the guards imposed on the various, the various transformations that occurred over the last 200 years or so. And they're starting to see the medieval fabric that's there. And it was a very, very splendid building. And if you go, I mean, if you all the way through the island of Ireland, how many medieval bishops' palaces have we left that are still functioning buildings today? You'd, find, you'd struggle to find another one. So I, I don't know what's going to happen to it now that the guards have moved out. But, I mean, I really hope that they put it to a use that is, you know, that reflects its historical importance because it, it was a, a magnificent building in its day. It's right beside, I don't know if, 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 if our listeners know, it's right beside St. Patrick's Cathedral, and Marsh's Library, in a lovely little complex there. And I, I think it would be wonderful if that whole area was, was developed to reflect it, its, you know, its former splendour. Very good. Well, Sean, congratulations on volume 18. I'm looking forward to volume 19. And then when volume 20, we'll have to have a huge celebration then. Uh, maybe looking back on all 20 volumes when we get to that milestone. Brilliant. I'll hold you to that, Patrick. Definitely. It's Medieval Dublin 18, published in paperback for Courts Press. You can get a hardback as well. The editor, Sean Duffy, 12 brilliant essays. And Sean, thanks a million for joining us. Thank you, Patrick. All the best. We'll be back with more Talking History on News Talk right after this. Talking History History on News Talk. Well, welcome back to Talking History. The Friends of Irish Freedom have been described as one of the most effective propaganda machines in Irish American history. And a new book explores the factors that led to its establishment and its campaign to prevent American entry into the First World War on Britain's side. The book is called Irish American Diaspora Nationalism, The Friends of Irish Freedom, 1916 to 1935. It's published in paperback by Four Courts Press. The author is Michael Durley. And Michael, you're very welcome to the show tonight. Thanks very much, Patrick. It's a fascinating insight into a, an aspect of this Irish-American story that I wasn't aware of. Can you tell us about the, the Friends of Irish Freedom and why they were founded? Well, uh, the organisation was founded in 1916 uh, at the Irish Race Convention uh, in New York. Now, the circumstances, I argue, as 
as much to do with American factors as Irish factors. But certainly Irish factors played a role. Uh, at that time, the Irish Parliamentary Party in Ireland, uh, Redmond's party, had his own uh, support organisation, the United Irish League of America. Uh, but Redmond's support for the British war effort didn't go down too well among Irish Americans. So the Clan the Gale, that was the revolutionary body that was linked to the IRB in Ireland. Uh, but there were a secret secretive organisation. So they felt that the time was ripe to launch a more broad-based movement that would appeal to mainstream Irish America, an organisation that would put forward the uh, idea of uh, an independent Ireland, Irish freedom, hence the name uh, the um, Friends of Irish Freedom. Uh, but the, the title of the book, uh, Irish American Diaspora and Nationalism, is important in my view because I argue that the Friends of Irish Freedom, a study of that organisation, tells us a lot about the nature of Irish American nationalism at that time and that it had a different agenda uh, from that of Irish nationalism. Now, there, were, there were similarities, but there were differences as well. And talk to me about then their concern about America entering the war on the side of, of Britain. And, you know, it's it's been described as this great propaganda machine. How effective were they in trying to lobby and rally opposition to that? Right. Um, well, in the first instance, uh, like the IRB in Ireland, the Friends of Irish Freedom hoped for a German victory. Uh, and that's... They argue that because because of that, that would help uh, the, the Irish independence movement. Um, it, it, from another perspective, the Friends of Irish Freedom were shaped by a fear of an Anglo-American alliance. And that is related to the position of the Irish in America at that time. The Irish in America felt that they were discriminated against, and indeed they were in many cases, by uh, a WASP, Anglo-Saxon WASP elite. Uh, and they felt that an alliance uh, between Britain and the US would only enhance the power of this elite and also um, would, in, in effect, undermine American independence. So, so, so that was another factor. Uh, behind uh, the campaign for uh, American neutrality. Now, how effective were they? Well, they did stage rallies, they um, demonstrations, but obviously uh, they, they weren't effective. America did join the war. And in part, there was an atmosphere of um, wartime hysteria, if that's the word. Uh, there was a Wilson even before America went into the war, argued that hyphenated Americans, and he was thinking of the Irish and the Germans in this case, uh, had poured poison into America's national life. So there was um, the organization didn't really grow as the organizers had hoped, uh, partly to do with that atmosphere. And then, of course, uh, the, within a relatively short time after its foundation, the U.S. entered the First World War. 
And when the when the U.S. had entered the war, the Friends of Irish Freedom uh, tended to take a back seat. They were reluctant to campaign against Britain uh, because they felt that, that they could be accused of disloyalty to America. So some visiting um, representatives uh, from Ireland, such as Lee Mellows, Hannah Shee's, Effington, they were somewhat uh, dubious about this uh, lack of activity. But again, that would, I guess, highlight that the organization's tactics uh, uh, focus was often as much influenced by American events as events in Ireland. And it's very interesting the way there were also major tensions between people in the Friends and uh, on the Irish side, in particular between the the leader and uh, Anemon de Valera. And it's fascinating the way different visions for what they should be doing there. Yes, exactly. Um, Now, de Valera saw the importance of Irish America and the very fact that he spent 18 months in America at a time of the uh, during the Irish Revolution was was uh, significant, um, but he believed that the Friends of Irish Freedom should follow his instructions effectively, and and in, sen- in a sense uh, he arrived in June uh, of uh, 1919. The Friends of Irish Freedom did grow uh, after the the First World War. Uh, the not the that atmosphere had eased, and uh, it reached about a hundred thousand by the end of uh, nineteen twenty, and and then it had associate members of one hundred seventy-five thousand. So an organisation, two hundred seventy-five thousand strong, branches throughout the country, um, it it was significant, and it Cohalan, Judge Cohalan, the leader of the Friends had links to uh, political and church leaders. So obviously de Valera felt that the the organization should help to promote his objectives. His objectives were firstly to uh, raise funds, secondly to raise the profile of the Irish question in the United States, and thirdly to convince the American government uh, to um, pledge to support the idea of an Irish Republic, uh, to put pressure on Britain for an Irish Republic. Uh, now, the Friends of Irish Freedom did, I would argue, play a key role in uh, certainly his, his campaign to raise funds. They paid for his tour of the United States. They, they provided the infrastructure for uh, his um, uh, fundraising. Uh, when de Valera visited uh, the different cities, the various branches would have turned out and organized rallies and, and, and events for him. Uh, so he, he certainly uh, got their cooperation in that regard. But the Friends of Irish Freedom, again, had its own agenda. They were vehemently opposed to the League of Nations. Uh, so uh, de Valera felt that this, the Friends of Irish Freedom campaign against the League was somewhat of a distraction. And de Valera himself was ambiguous towards the League. He later claimed that he was 
trying to persuade Wilson and leading Democrats to um, make a case for Ireland joining the league. Uh, so that put him at odds with uh, Judge Cohalan and John Devoy, key figures in the Friends of Irish Freedom Movement. Uh, they were very much opposed to, to, the, to the League of Nations. And I suppose the Irish Americans felt that being Irish American, they should be in charge. Uh, whereas De Valera felt that he was the leader of Irish nationalism and Irish American nationalists should follow uh, his line. Uh, so there, there was obviously a, a power conflict there. Well, thank you very much, Michael. The book is called Irish American Diaspora Nationalism, The Friends of Irish Freedom, 1916 to 1935, published in paperback by Four Courts Press. The author is Michael Durley. And Michael, thanks so much for coming on the show tonight. Thanks very much, Patrick. I'm delighted to, to, to be here. We'll be back with more Talking History on News Talk right after this. Talking History, History on News Talk. Well, welcome back to Talking History. The Gallipoli campaign has gone down as one of the great disasters in the history of warfare. And previous works have focused on the battles and typically blamed uh, the First Lord of the Admiralty, Winston Churchill. But a bold new account offers the first fully researched explanation of why Prime Minister Asquith and all of his senior advisers, the warlords, ordered the attacks at Gallipoli in the first place, in defiance of most professional military opinion. The book is called The Warlords and the Gallipoli Disaster, How Globalised Trade Led Britain to Its Worst Defeat of the First World War. It's published in hardback by Oxford University Press, and I'm delighted to welcome the author, Nicholas A. Lambert, to the show tonight. Nick, you're very welcome. Thank you for inviting me, Patrick. Nick, it's very interesting that normally when people talk about Gallipoli, it's, it's in terms of how culpable Winston Churchill was. It's about the battles themselves. That's absolutely right. Um, almost since the uh, end of the campaign uh, in 1916, people have been more interested in trying to attribute blame and to focus on the military side of the disaster. So it is seen as a military disaster. So people have always looked at the military causes and the military consequences for the disaster. But very few people have really asked the question, yes, but what was it they were supposed to be doing? Why did they attempt this very high risk operation in the first place? What were their actual political objectives? And that leads us to your very intriguing subtitled, How Globalised Trade Led Britain to Its Worst Defeat, because you wouldn't normally connect it with trade or indeed with global trade. Yes, Um, but that um, one has to remember that um, at this time, before the First World War, um, Britain imported most of its food and uh, in particular wheat. 80%, 80%, sometimes 85%, depending on the harvest of all British wheat, came from overseas, which meant four loaves of every five that are baked and consumed in Britain actually come from foreign wheat. And the largest exporter of wheat in the world before 1914 was actually Russia. And so when the Straits or the Dardanelles Straits were closed in late 1915. That effectively chopped off 30 to 35 percent of global supply at a stroke. And you can imagine that when you chop off nearly a third of supply, prices are going to skyrocket. 
which is in fact what they started to do. So what are we actually looking at? That rather than this being a military decision to to open up another front, what we're actually looking at is a decision to try and uh, protect the, 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 the international grain trade. Yes. Uh, I mean, by protecting the international grain trade, uh, you're achieving a number of objectives or you're killing several birds with one stone. Number one, uh, by increasing the supply of wheat, you're bringing down the price of wheat on the international market, which means you're bringing down the price of food and bread in Britain, which was threatening to uh, spiral out of control and generate serious political problems at home. At the same time, there's another advantage, as, as I mentioned earlier, Russia is in fact one of the largest exporters of wheat in the world. And its foreign exchanges really depended upon the export of wheat. And so when the Dardanelles were closed towards the end of 1914, Russia was effectively prevented from exporting its number one commodity, wheat and various other commodities. And this caused uh, the Russian currency, the ruble, to literally collapse. And do you think there was a kind of a manipulation of the historical record to, to in a way, uh, mask how this all came about and to, to ensure that these warlords didn't get the blame? Yes. I mean, Asquith was a very cunning and crafty man, and uh, he was a first and foremost a politician. He appointed the uh, Royal Commission appointed, uh, set up in 1916 to make the first inquiry. And he was very, very um, careful in the people he selected to become the commissioners. And another thing that he did is, is that um, the way in which the information was presented to the commissioners, uh, they literally um, deluged, bombarded them with so much information and so much data that the commissioners couldn't make heads nor tails of what they had. I mean, where to begin? Uh, they, they were confronted with a small warehouse full of paper. And so what Asquith then does is he sends his secretary, uh, Morris Hankey, with um, a what you might call a cheat sheet or a memorandum laying out the structural skeleton of the story that uh, Asquith wanted told. So really, this is as much a, a political story as a, as a military one. And it shows how things can really spiral out of control uh, very quickly. That's something that uh, you might necessarily have uh, ha- have predicted uh, uh, can suddenly go the wrong way. And uh, the fact that they weren't prepared to listen to the military advice uh, led them into that disaster. Yes. Uh, but to be fair, the situation was so confused and so chaotic and constantly changing. Uh, it was a, they were they were in a very very difficult position in trying to make a decision. They they had so many problems they were ta- trying to or they were confronted with, and they're trying to tackle at the same time. Um, they um, were. So when they initially decided to launch the attack at the Dardanelles, it was initially proposed as a very low-risk Navy-only attack. Uh, The idea being that the Royal Navy would be able to bombard the Turkish forts at long range outside the effective range of the Turkish batteries. And, well, if it worked, great. And they would push on a little bit further. And if it didn't, didn't, they would break off the attack. 
But then little by little, as things often happens in this world, uh, things tend to get out of hand. And uh, so they did. And things spiraled rapidly out of control. And uh, the, uh, the importance of achieving the objective of opening the Dardanelles grew and grew. And the intensity of the wheat crisis and the price of food in Britain was growing at the same time. So they became what you might call more and more desperate. And it just escalated and spiraled for the next sort of six, seven weeks. And before you knew where you were, you were sending all the troops you had available uh, to make an amphibious assault, um, uh, you know, an, an opposed landing on the most heavily defended uh, piece of land on the planet. And uh, with disastrous consequences, as we know. Well, Nick, congratulations. It's a fascinating new insight into the Gallipoli campaign. The book is called The Warlords and the Gallipoli Disaster, How Globalised Trade Led Britain to Its Worst Defeat of the First World War. It's published in hardback by Oxford University Press. Uh, the author, Nicholas A. Lambert. And thanks so much for joining us tonight. Thank you very much, Patrick. And we'll be back with more Talking History on News Talk right after this. Talking History, history on News Talk. Well, welcome back to Talking History. A new book looks at the life and legacy of Isidore Izu, the founder of the avant-garde movement Lettrism, who is considered to be as sexy and as charismatic as the young Elvis and who gathered around him a group of hooligan disciples who argued, drank and had sex with the Parisian intellectual elite. And it's a fascinating story told brilliantly by Andrew Hussey. The book is called Speaking East, The Strange and Enchanted Life of Isidore Izu. It's published in hardback by Reaction Books. And Andrew, you're very welcome back to the show. Oh, thanks very much. I'm delighted to be back, you know. Uh, tell us about uh, this amazing character because and, and the extraordinary circumstances, that the fact that even he made his way to Paris in 1945, having survived the Holocaust in Romania. Yeah, well, what happened was I, I met Isidore Izu in the mid-90s and I was doing a completely different other book, um, which I'm not going to tell you about because it's a different story. But I met Isidore Izu, he was part of the research for this book. And I was told that he was completely mad and I was going to have a really hard time. And what happened was I went up to interview him in, in his little flat in, on the left bank. And I just put my tape recorder on. And five hours later, um, I came out with a complete story, and I, the eyewitness account of what happened to Izu during the Romanian Holocaust. And he was nearly killed during one of the worst slaughters in 1941. And eventually he came to Paris as a, as a sort of stateless uh, Jew, someone displaced by the war. But one of the beliefs that he developed um, after, after he'd nearly been killed was the idea that he was the Jewish Messiah. And because he'd survived this massacre, he, he had to bring the good news of letterism to the world. So that's when he went to Paris, started the avant-garde movement. And he was, he was only you know, about 17 or something like that, 1947. Um, and um, yeah, his, his idea was that he was completely going to revolutionise the world with the letterist revolution. Now, I had actually never heard of letterism. So what exactly is it and how influential was it as a cultural movement? It was massively influential during the 40s and the 50s. And it was very influential on a group called the Situationists who became really the kind of leading lights of May 68 and who eventually went on to interview, to influence people like Malcolm McLaren and the Sex Pistols and punk rock and all of that kind of stuff. So that's the kind of like genealogy of it, if you like. But I actually asked Izu, you know, um, what is letterism? Because I, I was trying to get to grips with all of this. It's not easy to understand. 
And he said to me, with typically megalomaniac um, grandeur, he said, Monsieur, it is like the Renaissance. It is the complete reinvention of what it means to be a human being. And actually, there's a kind of logic to that in the same way that, you know, surrealism was the same thing. It was la révolution surréaliste. And it was, a, it was about inventing, reinventing what it was to be a human being and not just a literary technique or, um, or, or an artistic technique. And the idea behind lettrism is that everything can become something else. So poetry can become music, music can become film, the, you know, all the arts blend into one, all the knowledge that mankind or womankind has acquired over the years can blend into one. And there was something mad and obsessive about it, but also compelling about this man who thought that he brought this message to the world. And tell me about the disciples who gathered around him and the fact that he was seen as this kind of almost like Elvis Presley figure and, you know, the drinking, the the, the, the violence, the sex. Like, it, it is a, a, a quite extraordinary cinematic story. It, it is a very cinematic story. I did everybody set out to write it like that. And I can see someone like Sasha Baron Cohen playing the, 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 the role because he was, he was a kind of like, punk rock provocateur uh, or rock and roll provocateur um, you know, before his time he looked like a cross between James Dean and Elvis he had women left, right and, and centre he was eventually, he was sent to prison in about 1949 for writing a book about um, how, to, how best to make love to women and he wrote lots of um, what he called erotic uh, erotologie novels many of which were banned and so on full of graphic descriptions of what a wonderful lover he was and all of this kind of stuff but he was like a superstar in the the 40s and early 50s and the rock and roll description is not wrong because he went mad he he did actually collapse and disintegrate in the 60s and like a lot of rock and roll stars i think what happened to him he was trapped in his greatest moment, which was when he was young and he was handsome and he was leading his group of hooligans across Paris and making front-page news and all of this kind of stuff. And all of a sudden, he hit his 30s, mid-30s, and he was being forgotten by history. So when you met him, what was he like then in the 1990s? And did you ever think you'd be writing his biography? I never thought for a minute I'd be writing his biography, but what happened was that he wasn't mad at all. He was suffering from a a degenerative disease that made it difficult for him to speak, and he was living in complete poverty. He couldn't walk. He was just sitting on the floor, and and I was there for five hours, putting tape after tape after tape. It was baking hot, and I came out, and I had to, you know, I'll be honest with you, I had to go for a few beers to slake my thirst and also come to terms with what I'd just found, because what I'd found was a completely unknown... There were a lot of things. There was a completely unknown account of the Romanian Holocaust, as seen by a teenager. There was the account of the trauma of how he got across Europe illegally and all of that kind of thing. And I got the impression when he was talking to me that he knew he was going to die quite soon. And what he was trying to do was tell this this young... English writer um, leaving his legacy to the world, as it were. The, the other big thing that has to be said is he, he was Jewish, and he came from the the, you know, the Jewish eastern part, the east, eastern you know, the Jewish Orient, the eastern Jewish part of Eastern Europe. And the big big idea 
why the book's called Speaking East, is that a lot of what we think of Western modernity, situationism, right down to punk rock, actually comes from the Jewish culture of Eastern Europe. And he was insistent, you know, he talked about Judaism on the attack and all of this kind of thing. And it was from this culture that we got Dada, that we got surrealism, and eventually a lot of things that are very contemporary now. And finally, uh, how do you sum up his legacy? Because he was a visual artist, he was a film director, he was a poet and many other things as well. Like it really was a, a, a quite significant and diverse contribution. Yeah, I gave a lecture on his zoo last Monday at the Sorbonne to a group of um, first years who'd never heard of him, and they got it straight away. And I don't know whether you'll let me do this, but if I, if I can read a few lines of a poem... Oh, great, yeah. Uh, he wrote in 1947. Bear in mind, he couldn't speak French. He's just arrived in Paris. So what he's trying to do is capture the sound of the streets. And then I'll explain how the students responded to it. Just a couple of lines. Pigalle, les catanes, les atanes, scorial, champs-alysées, chansman, boulmiche, tricoriche, hello baby, obretrady, lanky doodle, coodle, you'll fucky noodle, all right lady, Paris. That's a poem called Paris, seen by a stranger. And the students got really into it, because what they picked up on was it was a poem that was being driven by rhythm and not words. Do you see what I mean? I do. Yeah, it wasn't yeah. about meaning. It was about the meaning of the sound. And, the, the, you know, when I was asking the students what they thought of it, they said, this is just like rap music, actually. And it's capturing what's around the atmosphere of where you are rather than writing, you know, these kind of um, highfalutin, um, abstract kind of forms of poetry. Does that make sense? It does. And I think you've brought his, uh, his, his words beautifully to life there. So thank you so much, Andrew. We're going to have to bring you back as a regular now on the show. You're so <laughs> passionate and so brilliant, whatever you're talking about. Okay, well, thanks very much. And uh, it's great to hear Izu making his mark in Dublin. Very good. Well, uh, the book is called Speaking East, The Strange and Enchanted Life of Isidore Izu, uh, published in hardback by Reaction Books. The author, the wonderful Andrew Hussey. And Andrew, we're going to definitely have you back, uh, not just speaking to Dublin, but to the entire island of Ireland and further afield uh, to all the people who listen to our podcast. So it's been an absolute pleasure. Smashing. Thanks a lot, Doc. And that brings us to the end of another edition of Talking History. My thanks to everyone who put tonight's show together, Susan Cattle, my producer, and Peter Malloy on sound. Next week, we'll be looking at the life and legacy of the brilliant Roman general Scipio, and we'll be finding out how he changed the history of the world. So join us next week on News Talk. We've been Talking History. Good night. Talking History, history. on News Talk. It's hard enough being a suitcase these days. Being stuffed at the back of this wardrobe for so long. <laughs> Could do the dusty, you know. Oh, a bikini? Is that sun cream? Ready for a holiday? It's time to fly from Shannon Airport. Did someone say a holiday? Discover more destinations than ever before, including New York, Boston, Malta, Barcelona, Budapest, Corfu, and more reasons to fly at shannonairport.ie. Yeah. 